Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Ticket Podcast. I'm your host, Noemi Di Stefano. If this is the first time you're hearing my voice and my name, I joined the team at IR Magazine and its sister publication, Corporate Secretary, as a reporter nearly two months ago. Now, first things first, I would like to thank our listeners for joining us today. In a break from the usual format, this last episode of the Ticker Podcast for 2022 is going to feature three different segments. Earlier in November, at the ESG Integration Forum Europe, I grabbed a chat with Q4's Director of Investor Relations, Tish Crawford-Jones, to discuss how companies can deliver a concise and compelling ESG narrative to the investor community. You can find the interview with Q4 in the second part of this episode. Also coming up on the show, IR Magazine contributor Jeff Cassette speaks to an Associate Professor of Finance at the University of Michigan about the potential conflict of interest proxy advisors face in selling their information to institutional investors and also what it means for companies. But first, as I mentioned earlier last month, the IR Magazine team hosted the ESG Integration Forum Europe event in person in London. The event brought together leading IR, sustainability and governance professionals to discuss a wide range of ESG issues facing both UK and European companies. Just after the last panel session at the event, Myself and a few members of the team sat down with IR Magazine editor James Beach to discuss some of the key takeaways from the day. And this is coming up now on the Ticker Podcast. Thanks everyone for joining us at the IR Magazine ESG Integration Forum Europe here in London. We've just finished the main thrust of the day, a series of fantastic panels uh, roundtables, discussions, and networking. And um, we're just catching up with the team post-conference for a bit of a sesh to talk about highlights, big takeaways, final thoughts, while it's all still top of mind. So uh, we're here on the ticker with senior reporter Tim Huben, uh, Nomi Stefano, reporter for IR Magazine, and also Lawrence Taylor, who put this whole magical show together. So great, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, let's start with asking for first impressions. What has been the highlights of this uh, ESG integration forum for you, Lawrence, putting this whole thing together? First of all, it's quite a timely time to do this because there's ongoing regulation in Europe, the CSRD, the EU taxonomy, but also companies are approaching the next AGM season in 2023. So there's, there's kind of that combined nicely with increasing investor pressures and changing investor expectations around you know, uh, what companies need to report and disclose and communicate when it comes to ESG. There were a lot of highlights. I think one of the main things that came out today was around an interesting point to, to summarize an ESG event, but not to have a separate ESG strategy and rather look at the ways in which ESG influence and impact your overall corporate strategy. So not seeing it as a kind of siloed you know, philanthropy kind of thing. And, and going from, a, Charles Chalkley mentioned this in our panel around ESG communications, but going from a tell me environment to a show me environment. So that was the kind of sense in the room, I think. 
Spot on. Thanks very much. Tim, you were in the thick of it. You were moderating panels. You were leading roundtable discussions. Were there anything, any developments that particularly stood out for you? Thank you, James. Yeah, picking up on what Lawrence was said, I think it's a very timely moment to have this conference uh, because there's just so many sort of mandatory ESG reporting rules coming down the pipeline for companies. And uh, one of the panels that I moderated today had uh, two speakers from UK-listed companies, um, but one of them is captured by not just the UK uh, listing rules, but also European in the future. And then the other one is not only UK and Europe, but also the US. And so they need to be thinking about the ESG reporting uh, rules that are changing in all three of those jurisdictions. And there's an awful lot happening. And so it was really great to just um, hear from them about all of the different regulations that they're currently focusing on at the, at the moment, and also how within their companies they sort of prioritize what they think about. And uh, one of the speakers made a really good point, which is you need to know a little bit about everything to then know what you can fo what you need to focus on right now, and then what you can park and leave aside and come back to later. And you not only need that for your own sort of sanity in terms of dealing with all of this, but also so you can reassure your company uh, internally that they've got everything under control. Thank you very much, Tim. Uh, Noemi, this was your first in-person event for both IR Magazine and Corporate Secretary. What were your first impressions and what was it uh, that left a lasting impression on you as well? Thank you, James. Yeah, for me, I mean, obviously, it was my first event, as you said, it was uh, great to network and to see how everything works. And I was surprised to see, you know, so many different companies from different industry, consultancy firms and oil and gas companies. And um, um, I think one thing that is clear to me is that industry is thirsty for the ESG, ESG strategies to be part of a company core strategy, not yet another strategy, but be embedded within the core strategy of a company. Industry is calling for boards and all the various layers of a company to come together and, and work together with a focus on ESG and only in that way it is going to work. This is one of the things that stood out for me during today's event. Fantastic. Many thanks for that. And final question for the impromptu panel. The so-called backlash against ESG is front of mind for so many IROs. Questioning how to navigate that, how to respond. Thinking about the outcomes today, the verdicts, any particular advice would you recommend for IROs concerned about that potential backlash? There's been increased scrutiny on ESG. Um, that comes almost in two very opposite forms. So two terms that come up a lot today, you know, the anti-ESG backlash, but also greenwashing. Both kind of seem to be part of this ESG backlash. Greenwashing actually is just scrutinizing ESG even more closely than it, than it ever has been. And I think that's a really healthy part of the kind of ongoing dialogue around ESG. In terms of the actual backlash, stakeholders who are against ESG proposals. We'll see how much of an impact this is going to make. I, I'm interested to hear what, Tim, what, what you make of this as well. This conversation tends to, when we've had this conversation before, it tends to be more kind of US-based. I don't know if there is a kind of significant regional difference in, in, uh, in this at all. But yeah, it's definitely something that people are starting to talk about. Maybe it's just a natural product of ESG kind of becoming more mainstream, and you're always going to have that kind of backlash to it. Maybe it's a, a broader trend of, of kind of, you know, people thinking that ESG is somehow aligning, misaligning the, the, mo the capitalist cause. I don't know. I think it's, it's more questions than answers at this point. But yeah, any other thoughts on that? Thanks, Lawrence. No, I think you made the good point that there's sort of different strands to this and there's, you know, more of a focus on greenwashing 
and there's been action against some asset managers, for example, in that area. And you could argue that that's just a healthy thing, that ESG has become such a big trend that it's important for that to be sort of scrutinized and, and regulated properly. Um, so that's one thing that was talked about a lot um, you know, during the conference today. And one person made a really good comment on one of the panels, which is that as we have more rules and regulations around sustainability, it's clearer what is sustainable and what isn't. And, you know, a number of years ago, it might, that might be a bit more fuzzy and you might get more, a company might be more at risk of greenwashing accusations, but now it's a bit clearer for companies, you know, what, what they need to do to be classed as truly sustainable. One other thing to mention is in terms of the backlash is that there's obviously a quite a strong sort of regional uh, difference here. And not, it's not just about attitudes towards um, or sort of extreme attitudes towards ESG, but I think there's, there's just more different approaches in the US and Europe. And um, during one of the round tables at the event, which was about the energy transition, uh, there was um, an oil and gas company that was talking about how when they talk to their shareholders in Europe, they get asked, why aren't you spending more capex on renewables? But then when they go and speak to their uh, shareholders in the US, they get the opposite question, which is, shouldn't, why are you spending so much money on this? And so that's a challenge for companies about uh, you know, educating the market that they need to take part in the energy transition, but it's also going to be good for their company, good for profits, and you know, offer opportunities in the long term. On that as well, to go back to Naomi's point, you know, in theory, this shouldn't make any difference to companies if you tie it back to the, the, kind of the financial emphasis of this. Is ESG good for the company financially? And I think you know, I would, most, most of our speakers today, admittedly slightly biased data set because we're at an ESG event, but would argue, yes, it's, it's an important part of the kind of long-term corporate strategy of the, of the company. And so if you can frame it like that, that's a good way of kind of getting around those kind of ESG skeptics, I guess. There was one, one of the speakers, I, I made a note of what she said, you know, to, to come back to your point about, you know, how ESG is related to company financials. And then she said, ESG is not here to just drive that company's top performance. And the fact that is, uh, that company is performing well in ESG doesn't necessarily mean that uh, it's performing well elsewhere. So ESG, it, she was saying, is just um, is about you know managing the bottom line of, of a company. It's about un understanding the risks in the first place. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that was an interesting point to kind of come back to what you were saying. And and she said that you know whenever there are companies that have CEOs or CFOs that say, oh, we don't care about ESG if this happens within a company, she was saying is the same thing as saying that they don't care about their company actually making profits uh, and, you know, having good financials. So, yeah, just to reiterate the fact that um, it should be at the core of a, of a company strategy. Fantastic insights. Thank you very much, everyone, for sharing your verdicts on a very illuminating IR Magazine and Corporate Secretary ESG Integration Forum 2022. My thanks to Tim Human, senior reporter, Naomi Stefano, reporter, and Lauren Stainer, senior producer of events. Uh, that's it for us, and look forward to future events, both IR Magazine and Corporate Secretary. Find out those details on our websites, and we'll see you there. You're invited to our IR Magazine Forum and Awards, Southeast Asia 2022, on December 6th, and the IR Magazine Forum and Awards, Greater China 2022, on December 8th. Investors, analysts and heads of IR from small, mid and large cap companies 
we'll come together to discuss the big issues relating to investor relations, corporate governance, shareholder needs, and the role of senior management in IR. Join us virtually to watch and interact with sessions and speakers and gain from one-to-one networking in between panel talks. Our coveted awards celebrate excellence in IR among professionals and companies across Southeast Asia and Greater China. IR peers, analysts and investors have told us who does the very best IR and we're excited to celebrate nominees and winners. Register to join via irmagazine.com and we'll see you at the forums and awards ceremonies. Welcome back to our listeners. I am Noemi Di Stefano, reporting from the floor of the ESG Integration Forum Europe here in London. And I'm joined by Tish Crawford-Jones, IR Director at Q4. Tish, thanks for joining us. Hi, it's lovely to be here. So just uh, wanted to grab a chat with you because uh, so you were one of the speakers at the um, panel earlier where we looked at how companies can work on the uh, ESG communication strategies and how they can send the right message to their shareholders and potential investors, how they can avoid over-disclosure. We discuss a lot of things, greenwashing and also how to keep the company narrative consistent. And there was one question about what advice would you give to companies to help navigating the changing reporting landscape, really. So obviously for those listeners and for our audience who wasn't there, would you be able to summarize the advice on best practice ESG reporting for companies, really? What should they be focusing on? Yes, you're, you're right. We, we covered um, quite a lot of ground. I think the, um, the most important thing that we touched on, all three of the panelists actually, was the, the fact that don't get too carried away with what the market is doing. There is so much out there that you need to report on these days. Um, don't get too carried away with what your peers are doing as well. Although it is very good to be able to do a peer analysis, to be able to look back at what they're doing. Every company is slightly different. Everybody's you know, operations could be in different places globally as well. So it's really important to be able to understand what is material to you, to your company, and then to work from that framework. Um, the way that we... Um, advise our clients um, is to look at standards like SASB. They are going to be um, rolled into ISSB. Um, And if you go onto um, their resources, it will show you the issues that are really pertinent for each of the industries. So your industry specific issues, then it will give you the disclosure topics that you should be looking at as well. Um, And alongside the disclosure topics, it looks at um, the the accountancy metrics and it even gives you the units in which you should be measuring in. So it really gives gives you a very succinct framework for you to look at and for you to report on. And then from that angle, you then should also be thinking about the internal stakeholders and your external stakeholders. So internal stakeholders being your workforce. Um, I think as um, one of the other panelists mentioned, it's been heightened even more because of the pandemic and our employees have a big voice, you know, the way that we treat them. Um, is really important. There's a lot more workforce directives that have come out since the pandemic. And then our external um, communication 
needs to be towards our investors. They are the biggest proponent um, who's going to look at our ESG story. And of course, making sure that the communication and where that sits in terms of your website and how you control that um, narrative on the website for these individuals is also going to be really, really important. Thank you. And of course, uh, there, there is best practice advice and there are a lot of requirements for companies. But um, if you if you were to, to look at what are maybe like the most common mistakes and what companies should really avoid doing, what, what would you say those mistakes are? I think everybody's learning. I think um, the problem is, is that it's not just the companies that are learning. I think the experts are also learning um, within ESG. Um, we touched on the fact that General Motors had um, come out and with the target to, um, I think it was to do to get to net zero by 2050. And they've pulled it back that they're actually going to be able to do it in the next few years. And I think the biggest mistake that um, a lot of companies are doing is that they feel pressured into joining into targets, to signing up for things that they don't actually understand themselves. I think what companies need to be able to do is to really, really understand their own risks, the impact that they have on the environment and socially, and the impact that environment and socially has on them as well. And once they understand that flow, then they can understand the risks and the opportunities, and they don't need to get ahead of themselves and start setting targets when they don't understand the data themselves. And I think as long as they are showing to the market that that's what they're doing, then um, the market will forgive them for the time that it takes them. And you mentioned targets. I, I think there was a question from, from the audience. Obviously, I mean, our listeners can catch up with, with the event on our website. But just to give our listeners a, a quick overview, when it comes to targets, how can companies set those targets? And what would you say has changed uh, recently about how they set them? So again, I think there's a lot of regulation in play um, and um, some of the bigger companies are going to be held by them. So, you know, the, the net zero and there's going to be some sustainable directives that are coming out from Europe as well that um, are going to look at the bigger companies. But I think as I, I mentioned on the panel, you know, one of our clients, is it's, it's a large company in Europe and they, um, they mentioned, well, one of the investors said to them, why haven't you signed up to this directive? And, and they said that, that's because they haven't done the due diligence. They don't know whether it's going to be financially or operationally good for their business. And they haven't got the answers on how it's going to affect them. And I think that's something that everybody needs to go back and do. They need to look at any of the targets that they do as to whether it is actually material for their company. So, for instance, I think um, on our panel there was um, Hayes. If he's talking about targets that people want to see around water consumption, he was saying that that's not as appropriate. Whereas probably the workforce directives, they're actually far more important for a company like that because it's all about the people. So I think look at the targets that um, are relevant to your company, but don't feel as if you have to create them just for creating sake. They have to showcase your financial and your operational performance. And I think that's what's key. Thank you. And just wanted to quickly touch on greenwashing, which is obviously like the big elephant in the room at the moment. And just to, to ask you if you have any advice for your peers, for other IROs on what role can they play to avoid that companies get accused of greenwashing and how can they mitigate and moderate that conversation if an accusation has already been made towards a specific company? So I think there's, there's a lot of people in a company that 
deal with um, ESG. And sometimes the IR person is just disseminating information from elsewhere. Having your ESG as part of your core strategy is so fundamental because then it aligns itself to the financial performance of your company. So you can actually tangibly link it to something rather than, and you can report on it, rather than it just being something that you make up, it's got numbers that sit behind it. So those numbers can be verified or those numbers can be tracked as well. One of the things that I mentioned before about SASB, if you're using frameworks to go from, then the investor community can understand where your reporting comes from. Then to be able to put it somewhere in a way that can be ingested. So what you want to be able to say is, these are the issues that we have. This is what we're going to be doing about it. Well, this is the state of play. This is what we're going to be doing about it. And then this is how we're going to track it. That type of um, process means that greenwashing is less likely to happen because you're not skirting over issues. You have actually backed it up with some data. And I think that's what's going to be more prevalent going forward. I think also understanding that there are metrics that you look at now versus how your company is going to affect your environment and your social going forward. Those types of metrics being um, baked into the financials will also be really important as well. That's great advice. And just one last question to, to close, really. You know, we, we have heard some people saying uh, there is more focus now on the S of the, on ESG, or some people say there is more focus on the E. Um, what are some of the ESG issues that you expect to come into the spotlight maybe next year or in the coming years? And do you think that some of the things that we discuss today would be less relevant next year, perhaps? I think that the environmental side is is always going to be important. I think all, all of the pillars are important. It's just that I think some of the things that have happened in the global environment have pushed some of the others to the forefront quicker. So the environmental side has come about a lot because of the climate change aspects that we've all been talking about. So that's really given that narrative more of a focus. Um, the reason why I think that the social aspect is coming alongside now, the pandemic has really shone a light on employees. And so that has come out as being something that's vitally important. And actually it's showing the cracks, you know, just as um, with um, the environmental side, it, it showed the cracks. This is what's happening with the social side of it. And actually as the companies are coming out of the pandemic, it's showing it more. I think they have more of a voice. I absolutely think that next year it's going to be something that people really need to consider. I don't think enough companies have realized how much of the social aspect is important. Um, I don't think that a lot of companies yet have realized what they need to do in terms of how they impact society and then how society back impacts them. And it's not just within the sphere that they can see it's along the supply chains as well. I think that's something that companies haven't been able to get to grips with. There is a cohort of certain industries like the retail that understand that there are modern slavery issues down the supply chains, but they don't have the solutions for them yet. So I think actually a lot of this is about Yes, we can understand that there are problems. And actually, maybe as a collective, the more industries understand that there's just like a systemic problem with some areas of their supply chains or operations, the more that they can actually get together to solve these things. And I think we're going to come across more of these as companies start to delve more into their operational risk. And then more people come out and say, well, actually, yeah, we also have that problem. And what can we do about it like as a whole as well? So I think those are the trends that we're probably going to see come up. 
over the next couple of years. On that note, we will have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Tish, for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Corporate roadshows are an essential part of investor relations between company managers and investors. But what state is in-person and virtual roadshow activity after the pandemic? Find out by reading the new Global Roadshow Report 2022 by IR Magazine. Compare your roadshow activity with your regional and market cap peers. Discover how roadshow activity is recovering from the pandemic. Learn which brokers are the most popular globally as well as by region for in-person and virtual roadshows. See which cities have been visited the most for in-person roadshows. Discover how IROs view the virtual roadshow experience and what this can mean for the future of roadshows. Read the new Global Roadshow Report 2022, now freely available on ironmagazine.com. Nadia Malenko, welcome to the Ticker Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So, what is the problem with Proxy Advisor's business model? Um, the way we think about this problem and what we emphasize in this paper is that proxy advisors face a fundamental conflict of interest in that ultimately they get their profits from selling their information, their recommendations and research to institutional investors. And their objective is not to maximize the value for institutional investors and not to maximize the value for the companies on which they give recommendations. That's the, the fundamental, that's your premise, essentially. That's, uh, that's just the fact uh, that uh, that's the business model of proxy advisors, that they get revenues and profits from selling research to shareholders. So we take it as given, and as we show in this paper, given that this is their objective to maximize their profits from selling information, we explore what implications it has for the recommendations they will be giving. And then we identify a certain bias that this maximization of revenue from selling information might lead to. So this situation leads to the generation of controversy, uh, much like parts of uh, my industry, the media. Yes, that's essentially the conclusion. Uh, what we uh, highlight is in order to increase the value of its research to the shareholders and to maximize the profits from selling information, uh, there is a benefit of creating controversy. Because if the vote is expected to go very smoothly without right, uh, a lot of controversy, 90% uh, will be voted uh, in favor of management, then from the perspective of an institutional investor, who actually wants to understand what the right decision is and maybe is willing to pay for this uh, information, ultimately, whether uh, the institutional investor understands it or not and makes an informed decision or not will not make a difference because there will be 90% of votes uh, in favor. So the value of acquiring information, of voting in a more informed way is much lower when the vote is not expected to be controversial, is not expected to be close. By creating controversy by biasing recommendations against this a priori likely alternative, the proxy advisor can increase the uncertainty about the vote outcome, and this increases uh, the value of information for institutions. Uh, 
I can see theoretically they want close votes. It, it helps the bottom line. Um, so have you have you proven this, or is this still sort of part of your supposition? Uh, this is uh, the, the paper is a theoretical paper. It shows that this is indeed in the theoretical interest of the proxy advisor. And then what we discuss is the evidence, empirical evidence on proxy advisors' uh, recommendations and on institutional investors' response to these recommendations. And as we discuss in the paper, a lot of the evidence lines up with the predictions that would be consistent with this uh, theoretical prediction. So is it a conscious thing? I mean, I mean, is it a scam, a racket? Uh, how, how deep does this go? Uh, we do not want to claim that this is what we are doing. I want to be very careful about this. Our paper is not an empirical paper that proves that there is this bias in recommendations. The goal of the paper is more to highlight that there is this potential for conflict of interest. And let me explain why. Um, because proxy advisors are so influential, there have been a lot of discussions about the quality of their advice and about potential biases. But all of this discussion focuses on a very different type of a conflict that uh, arises when an proxy advisor has another business on the side, like ISS does, consulting the corporations. So ISS has this consulting business where it consults corporations on corporate governance. And there has been a lot of discussion how that might uh, lead to a certain bias in ISS recommendations. And much less attention has been uh, devoted to thinking about this more fundamental uh, issue that in their role of uh, sellers of information, proxy advisors ultimately are not maximizing the value uh, of the companies and the value for shareholders. So the bias we identify is inherent in selling advice and would arise even for a company like Las Lewis, which does not have this consulting business on the side. So just to, to, to get back to your original question, I want to emphasize we are not saying this bias definitely is there. There are some predictions uh, that are consistent with the observed patterns in the data, but there are also other ways to explain these patterns. So our paper does not make a clear statement that this bias is there. What we want um, institutional investors and uh, companies to realize that the potential for this bias exists. So I can see why institutions might be interested in this bias. Uh, but what's the impact on companies? I mean, what's an IRO to, to make of all this? Uh, companies have to respond to proxy advisors' recommendations. So when recommendations recommend, when proxy advisors recommend against management, uh, companies typically devote a lot of time in trying to come up with an alternative suggestion to vote, trying to explain why this given recommendation against management does not make sense from their perspective. So knowing that there is this uh, bias, but potential bias, uh, against uh, the the management could help them just explain to institutional investors that a recommendation against management does not necessarily mean that this is a bad proposal. So you can say you, you can say, pardon me if I'm I, understanding incorrectly, but you could, to put it crudely, you could slap your study uh, in front of uh, some other investors and say, look, uh, don't listen to say, for example, ISS uh, because they're going to be biased against management. There is a potential for this bias. So uh, again, I, I, I definitely don't want our study to be cited as showing there is a bias. So our study highlights the potential for such a bias. Okay, okay, okay. That's fair enough. But I mean, just practically thinking, what could an IRO do with this, uh, your results? 
ISS uh, has the potential to be biased. Uh, I mean, exactly. I think I think uh, I think very commonly the bias is in the opposite direction. The bias that uh, is cited that if a, if ISS has a consulting business with the company, it will be more predisposed uh, towards uh, management. And I think from the investor relations perspective, just highlighting that there is an opposite bias that might potentially um, arise because that would that might make them a little bit more right suspicious of these negative recommendations just in case right this they do not necessarily uh highlight that the underlying the underlying information so what can be done about it uh, i mean it's controversy um there's a predilection for that so is there a way to to stop it or mitigate it somehow i think the way to mitigate it would be to uh, I'm not sure it is feasible, but the way to mitigate it is to make uh, proxy advisors have some economic interest in the value of the company, right? If they, if they, uh, if their economic, uh, if their cash flows were somewhat related to the value of the underlying companies, then they would be uh, worried about making a recommendation that does not lead to an informed vote. A real skin in the game, like. A skin in the game, exactly. I'm not sure how feasible it is, uh, because right, that's, I think that's a legal question. But that would have uh, the ability to definitely counteract any kind of biases and align the incentives with institutional investors, with uh, the value maximization. Huh. Interesting idea. Okay. Um, just to wrap up then, um, is there anything else uh, we should talk about in terms of practical implications? Yeah, maybe maybe let me let me say one 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 particular implication. Maybe there is a lot of um, evidence that certain types of institutional investors uh, tend to vote with manage so in a more pro management way uh, relative to ISS recommendations. So there are several studies showing that big, that for example, the major asset managers, the big three, they are generally more pro management in their votes relative to say ISS. And um, what our study emphasizes, there are two ways to look at this evidence. A common way to look at this evidence is to say, look, these institutional investors are passive. They're not doing anything. They just go with the management or maybe they even have a pro-management bias for whatever reason. That would be one way. Uh, and this a way of looking at this evidence treats the recommendations of the proxy advisor as the right benchmark. Uh, and what our paper says, maybe the recommendations of the proxy advisor are not always the right benchmark. Because if the recommendations themselves are biased against management, then voting in a more pro-management way is a way to correct for this bias in recommendations. And maybe the more correct benchmark could be the votes of these major asset managers. It's just, again, our paper cannot say what is the right way to interpret this evidence, but it offers uh, just some room for thought that uh, when this evidence is there, right, there are two ways to look at it. And Nadia Malenko, thanks for joining us on The Ticker. Thank you for inviting me, Jeff. You have been listening to the latest episode of the Ticker Podcast, brought to you by IR Magazine. A big thanks to everyone who took the time of being with us today. For our listeners, if you enjoyed the show, make sure you like and subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from. 
stay up to date with the latest trends and thought leadership in the global IR space by reading our new Winter 2022 issue of IR Magazine. All our issues are freely available on irmagazine.com. You can get expert insights, coverage and analysis on the latest changes and challenges in the investor relations landscape. Peer-to-peer -peer advice from IR professionals on what to do to ensure your shareholder reach and engagement stand out from the crowd. And much more. Until next time, thanks for listening.